Uh, this morning we are in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, I have been gone a lot in the last four weeks, but I am glad to be back with you. And I was reassuring someone this week that, Lord willing, we will get Israel out of Egypt before we leave to go camping later this summer. So uh, we'll be in Exodus for a while. We're in Exodus 4. If you're using the Church Bible, that's on page 55. And uh, you may recall from two weeks ago, we're picking up in the middle of a conversation. A conversation between God and Moses. God appears to Moses at, uh, as a, a fire in the midst of a bush that is not being consumed. And God reveals to Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he has seen Israel in their affliction and oppression. That he has a plan to bring them out of Egypt into a good land. And, pivotally, that Moses has an important part to play in that plan. And that's kind of where the conversation goes from there, is negotiating back and forth. Moses is keen to see his kinsmen delivered, but he thinks maybe God has the wrong guy. So there's a back and forth. Moses poses uh, five different objections to God's call. God responds to each one. In chapter 3, we saw Moses ask two questions. God gave two answers. Now we're going to see Moses make two statements, and God is the one who asks questions. Here now, uh, Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. 
He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is God's word. Uh, this whole conversation between God and Moses has been about God's call on Moses' life and Moses' response to that call. Of course, Moses' call is very specific to his own circumstances. But there are a variety of analogies between God's call to Moses and the life of faith more generally. The life of faith begins with God's call and our response to that call. And relationship with God always entails a response on our part. You can't just get involved with God and it not change your life. Knowing God personally affects us. Uh, at risk of pushing this analogy between Moses' situation and ours a little bit too far, Moses has been called to go into Egypt and proclaim that God is at work to free his people from bondage uh, through his saving acts. And historically, the distinctive feature of evangelical Christians has been a commitment to announcing the good news that God sets people free through his saving acts. And so in a rough sense, there's an analogy between Moses' call to proclaim freedom in Egypt and the call that we all have to proclaim freedom to our friends, neighbors, others who need to know this good news. If we see a rough analogy between Moses' call and his encounter with God and our own lives of faith, we can imaginably then join with Moses in this dialogue, this back and forth. Moses' objections uh, in order focus on his inadequacy, 
his inability, his ineffectiveness, and his incompetence. Have you ever felt any of those in the face of God's call on your life? Inadequate, unable, ineffective, incompetent? Friends, I'm humbled by these things each week as I prepare to uh, preach God's word. And that mixture of humility, insecurity, and excuses that Moses brings forth rings true. It's the kind of ways we respond to God. And yet in God's responses to Moses' objection, we see, uh, and the way this narrative unfolds, we see three truths uh, that reassure us this morning. First, don't worry, God is in control. Second, don't worry, God is your maker. And third, even the mediator needs a mediator. First, don't worry, God is in control. Don't worry, God is in control. Uh, just quickly reviewing from chapter 3, remember Moses' first question is, who am I that you would send me? God's answer, I am with you. So then Moses' second objection, well then, who are you, God? God's answer, I am who I am. I am the Lord. God uh, reveals himself to be like that self-sustaining fire that doesn't need fuel. God is the source of all that is. He has life abundant in himself. Then God tells Moses in chapter 3 to gather together the elders of Israel and tell them that this Lord, the great I Am, will deliver them from Egypt. And in 3.18, he tells Moses, they will listen to your voice. Now what does God say in 4.1? Or not God, Moses, say in 4.1, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. It's a flat contradiction of what God has just told him they will do. He says, they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is saying, look, God, I have tried to talk to my people when I was back in Egypt, and they blew me off. They're just going to say, you never met God. You're making all this up. We've heard your story before, Moses. Get lost. Okay? Now that Moses is making these sorts of statements, God starts asking him questions. It's interesting, the shift. Moses asks questions, God makes statements. Moses makes statements, now God asks questions. Although God's first question seems pretty irrelevant. What is in your hand? What's in your hand? Moses, a staff. Of course, God is about to provide Moses with three signs uh, that will persuade three different audiences. Uh, in verses 8 and 9, these acts are called signs, and then in verse 21, they're called miracles or wonders. A sign is something that points beyond itself, right? Uh, the sign on the side of the freeway saying what restaurants are at the exit, the sign doesn't give you food. You've got to follow the sign to the thing itself. Uh, likewise, these acts are signs that point beyond themselves to God. But they're also wonders that affect the observer. But God doesn't tell Moses that he's about to give them three signs. He just says, chuck the stick down. And Moses obeys, and it turns into a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Okay, assuming that his uh, uh, shepherd's staff is five or six feet tall, presumably the snake is a similar length, okay, running away is a pretty reasonable response. But then God calls him to come back and grab the snake by the tail. Uh, when I was down in California a couple weeks ago running on a trail, I came around a corner and there was a rattlesnake sunning itself on the trail and it, it uh, curled up and started rattling its thing. And you probably could not pay me any amount of money to grab it by the tail. Uh, but Moses listens, he grabs it by the tail, and it becomes a staff in his hand. Uh, if you're interested, there's a debate on whether it's best to grab snakes right behind the head or by the tail. Apparently Steve Irwin grabbed them by the tail. I know he's dead now, but it wasn't by a snake. So anyways, uh, you can chase that down on YouTube later if you're curious about uh, snake handling, uh, those sorts of things. 
Second, then God tells Moses, put your hand inside your shirt. He brings it out, and it's white like snow. It's, it's diseased. It's not healthy. Then God says, put it back in. Again, your natural reaction, if your hand is covered in sores, is not to put it, you know, rub it on other parts of your body. But he sticks it back in his shirt. He brings it out, and it's healthy again. And then the third sign in the nature of the case can only be acted out in Egypt. So God just tells Moses about it. He says, if you take water from the Nile and you pour it out on the dry ground, it will become blood. Okay, there's three signs. And these three signs have three audiences. At the first level, Moses is worried that Israel is not going to believe him. They're not going to believe that he has indeed encountered God. And so uh, God gives Moses these signs which point to God's power. Don't worry, God is in control. But these signs also target some of the key symbols and beliefs of Egypt. Uh, you may know that the pharaohs in Egypt, at least some of them, wore crowns that had hooded cobras right on the front of the, you know, if you've ever seen a sword and sandal movie or gone to an Egyptian exhibit, you've seen that sort of thing. Uh, it was a symbol of, uh, of Egyptian sovereignty, royalty, that the king was even a deity, okay, that serpent. And yet God says to Moses, grab the serpent by the tail. And Egyptian life was totally dependent on the Nile River. Uh, literally, it flooded every year annually, and that's how they irrigated all their cropland. No Nile, no life in Egypt. And what happens to this life-giving river? If he takes the water out of it and pours it on the ground, it will become blood. So these signs are a reassurance to Israel, but they're also a challenge to Egypt's claims of divinity and sovereignty and power. But third, these are also signs for Moses. Moses is worried that people won't believe him. But God is saying, don't worry, I'm in control. I can even change the very nature of things. I can make an inanimate dead staff into a living serpent and back again. I can make healthy flesh diseased and then healthy again. I can take life-giving water and make it into blood. I have control even over the very nature of things. Things are the way they are because I will them to be that way. So these signs, it's for Israel, it's for Egypt, but then it's also for Moses. Well, what's the point? Moses is worried that his fellow Israelites won't listen to him or believe him, but God is in control of all things, and he can even change hearts so that they will be receptive to his message. That's a reassurance for us. I mean, we have this analogy with Moses that we too are called to bring the message of good news to our people. And isn't that one of our big worries is people won't believe me. They won't listen. They'll say, you never met God. And yet God's saying, it's in my power to change hearts and make them receptive. In fact, we see this explicitly in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses is tell, uh, God's telling Moses, I have control even over human hearts. Now, this theme of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it keeps cropping up over the next 10 chapters, so we're going to keep coming back to it. I'm not going to unpack it all this morning. Uh, but, and, and, and throughout these 10 chapters, there's several different words for hardening that are used. But the word that is used here is literally strengthen. I will strengthen the Pharaoh's heart so he won't let the people go. It's the same word used in Joshua 1 when Joshua is told three times, be strong and courageous. What God's saying is, uh, you know, 
Pharaoh claims to be in control, but I'm actually in control, and there's going to be this battle to prove it. And it's not going to be Pharaoh on his worst day when he just wants to give up because he's not feeling good. I'm going to strengthen his heart so that he stays committed to this battle to the bitter end. And it uh, definitively will prove who has control over all things. Don't worry, God is in control. He can strengthen hearts to be opposed to him. He can soften hearts to be receptive to his word. Well, then Moses poses his fourth objection, and we learn another reassuring truth. Don't worry, God is your maker. Don't worry, God is your maker. Moses' fourth objection is again a statement uh, in verse 10. I'm not a man of words. Uh, Literally, his speech goes something like this. Oh, Lord, not not a man of words am I. Neither yesterday, nor in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I have a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. We don't know quite what this means. It could simply mean that Moses is not one for public speaking. But heavy mouth and heavy tongue most likely refer to some sort of a speech disorder that Moses has. Uh, One uh, prominent ancient Jewish legend has it that Moses burned his tongue on a coal as a, a, a baby and had a speech impediment the rest of his life as a result. Uh, And actually, this language of heavy mouth, heavy tongue is used in various Mesopotamian medical texts to refer to a medical condition. So most likely, uh, Moses has some kind of a speech disorder. Either way, surely we can all identify with Moses in this objection here. God, surely you have the wrong person. I'm not gifted like so-and-so. I don't have the abilities other people have. I'm not talented. I'm not musical. I'm not eloquent. What can I do? Am I the only one who said those sorts of things? Or maybe you guys have too, I hope. Uh, Well, I don't hope you've said those things, but I hope you're being honest with yourself that these are the kinds of objections that we make. Well, how does God respond? Again, with questions. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? These questions unpack what it means that God is, I am. God has already reassured Moses, I'm in control of all the external circumstances. Now he's saying, I'm your maker. I made you the way that you are. He's showing him what it means for him individually, that God is the creator. God is in control of all things, but he also made me and you individually, in your particularity. Uh, that, That new song we've been learning puts it like this, the one who made the heavens made my heart and soul. And the implication God is drawing out here for Moses is that no condition or disorder or lack of ability or lack of competency in our lives is outside God's control. Don't worry, God is your maker. Heidelberg Catechism, question 26, makes this point about creation. It says, when you say, I believe that God is the, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, what does that mean? This is what it means. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, that almighty God of all things is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity 
He sends me in this sad world. He's able to do this because he's the almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Okay, the doctrine of, the cre- of creation, that God made all things, has very personal application. God is our maker. He knows our abilities and our disabilities. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. And then he repeats his basic call. Now, therefore, since I made you how you are, Moses, and I know all about your speech disorder and all your shortcomings and weaknesses, now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should speak. Uh, that I will be with your mouth, it's, it's that same Hebrew, I am. He's offering himself to Moses. He's saying the I am is with your mouth. God recognizes Moses' weakness and then offers Moses himself. He doesn't puff Moses up. He doesn't say, you're not that bad at speaking. You're actually pretty good. He doesn't blow him off or condescend. He doesn't say, it doesn't really matter. Just do what I said. He takes it seriously and reassures him. Yeah, you've got this speech disorder, but I myself will be with your mouth. Along the same lines, remember Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Moses says, I'm not a man of words, and you may think the same thing about yourself. You know, I'd like to share the good news with my brother or sister or something, but I'm just not that eloquent. Or maybe it's something else that God is calling you to do, and you just think, but God, I don't have the ability. I'm not well equipped for what you're calling me to do. Whatever it is, God says, I know, but don't worry. I'm your maker. I know everything about the way you are, and I'm still calling you and sending you, and I give myself to you, and I will be with you. While we're touching on this topic of uh, Moses and his apparent disability that God uses to his own glory, uh, I just want to pause for a moment for some sort of pastoral reflection on, the, uh, on us as a corporate church. If God looks at someone like Moses with a speech disorder, a disability, and calls him to play a pivotal role in his mission, then our church needs to be equally open and inclusive to those with various disabilities. And sometimes I think as Christians we can have unspoken assumptions about how people should dress or look or act or behave that unintentionally exclude people. Uh, This week I was running laps down on Blanchard and I kept interacting with a guy who was hiking that had some sort of palsy and so had uh, uncontrolled uh, motor movement. And I wondered, would he feel comfortable in our church uh, if he was sitting in our midst and constantly moving during the service? Or would he feel out of place? I'm not saying I have easy answers to this, but I I hope you would feel welcome, but we need to be intentional about cultivating a culture in our church where we are welcoming to everyone. We can't assume that we know what's going on in everybody's lives, and we certainly don't have a right to interrogate everyone and ask them if they have some condition or something. We need to have have charity towards the people around us uh, uh, and the way that we interact with them. God knows what's going on in their lives. We don't. But it's not just including people. God calls Moses into the ministry. We need to provide ministry opportunities for people that uh, the world as a whole might write off and say there's just not a role for them here. Notice Moses' personality is not a race. God doesn't say, I'm going to give you a script and just read this. He says, I'll teach you what to say. You'll learn the message, you'll internalize it, and from your own personality, you'll speak it out in Egypt. 
Okay, I'm cheating with the third truth, trying to draw together everything else left in the chapter. But the third truth is this. Even the mediator needs a mediator. Even the mediator needs a mediator. God calls Moses to act as his mediator. So Moses is going to speak to the people on God's behalf. Moses has posed these four objections, then he tries to get out of it. He says, Lord, please, just send someone else. Okay? And throughout this entire lengthy discussion, God has kept entertaining his objections. He wants to have this conversation with Moses because that's how you build relationship. It's by conversation, talking. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, but now Moses seems to have crossed a bridge. In verse 14, we read, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What's interesting is this is the first time in the Bible that it says God was angry with a person. Okay, in the flood, all that stuff, Sodom and Gomorrah, whatever you can think of from Genesis even what Pharaoh has been doing up to this point, it's with Moses. And in the context of this intimate relationship that God is first angry with another person. But notice how God's anger plays out. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't blow up at Moses. He doesn't smite him. He doesn't say, fine, I'll get someone else. Uh, in fact, if the narrator didn't tell us that God was angry, we wouldn't even know from his next words. Uh, what is, how does God respond well, he responds to Moses by accommodating and sending Aaron as a mediator for Moses. He says, look, isn't your brother a good speaker? He's coming. He can speak for you. It's interesting. Is this God's plan B then? He wants Moses to speak to the people, but then Aaron kind of comes along and he's like, okay, fine. I'll accommodate to what you want. Well, seemingly this is in response to Moses' request that God send someone else. Moses says, please send someone else. He says, look, your brother Aaron is coming. Aaron can speak well. And yet, verse 14, God says, Aaron is already on the way. And he says, Moses, uh, Aaron can speak well. I've been developing him to act in this way his whole life. God has already sent Aaron to meet Moses before Moses asks God to send someone else. Aaron's already on his way. Verse 27 is a flashback. Uh, to, you know, it's followed Moses' whole story, and then it flashes back, and, it says, and then Mo God also told Aaron to go meet Moses, and that's what's happening there. And so we see this mystery of divine providence. On the one hand, Aaron is indeed sent as a mediator in response to Moses' request, and yet clearly it's already part of God's plan before Moses even asked. Just like Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And yet it's still important to ask because that's how relationships are built up, is conversation back and forth. And then verses 15 and 16 paint this picture of mediation for us. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach both you and him what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Just as Moses is a mediator who speaks to the people for God, so Moses the mediator needs another mediator, Aaron, to stand between him and the people. Okay, well, then uh, this encounter with God, uh, Moses sets out. It doesn't circumvent good order. He arranges with his father-in-law who blesses him. He heads out on the way. God reassures him and gives him a reminder of the message he's meant to bring to Egypt. Uh, and I probably should have talked about this some more, but in, in verse 23, uh, or sorry, rather, verse 22, it's the first time that the Lord has called Israel his son. Israel is my firstborn son set them free so they can freely serve me. And if you don't set my firstborn son free, your firstborn son will die. And, well, 
Another time I'll preach it a different way and focus on that, because uh, there's a lot there. It, it helps us to think about Israel, and then Christ is the firstborn son, and the relationship between Christ and Israel. But what I want to focus on is verses 24 and 26, is through 26 we conclude, one of the strangest passages in the whole book of Exodus, okay? Uh, and it's strange, that's the bottom line. Moses and his family lodge for the night, and again, Moses encounters God, who now seeks to put him to death. And the details are ambiguous in Hebrew. It's not clear who even God is trying to put to death. It could be Moses. Uh, it could be Gershom, his firstborn son. It's not clear whose feet are touched with the foreskin. Uh, not a sentence I hope to repeat again in a sermon, but uh, uh, it could be Gershom. It could be Moses. Uh, and so even what's going on, like the details are a little bit unclear. Alec Mateer, uh, the Old Testament scholar, imaginatively suggests a scenario that sort of generally fits, but there's no way to prove it. It's just like, well, maybe. Uh, Moses is struck in some way as they lodge a night. Perhaps he's having some sort of seizures. Uh, Zipporah, his wife, recognizes that it's not just a physical ailment, but there's some kind of an underlying cause, uh, a spiritual dimension. And so she circumcises her son and touches Moses' feet to identify Moses with the act of circumcision. Well, yeah, it could be that. It could be a lot of other things. It's just not clear what's going on here. Uh, we just don't have enough information. But what is clear is that God's presence is potentially deadly. God's presence is potentially deadly. Uh, being God's spokesman doesn't mean Moses can simply do whatever he wants. God says, I'm going to rescue Israel because I'm the God who is faithful to my covenant promises. But his people also have to be faithful to the terms of the covenant. Moses has failed to circumcise his sons, the covenant sign of the relationship given uh, between God and his people, which was given to Abraham. And so Zipporah recognizes there's something out of order here, that her sons have not been circumcised, and now the covenant God has encountered them, and it will potentially be fatal. Only the covenant sign of circumcision averts the danger of the Lord's presence. This whole episode then foreshadows the Passover, where again, firstborn sons are threatened to die and only protected if their house is marked by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. God's presence can't be manipulated or treated flippantly. God's presence is potentially deadly. And so the covenant protects us from God even as it binds us to God. Moses is the mediator between God and Israel. When we get to Mount Sinai, Israel says, don't let us hear God's voice again or we'll die. You talk to God and tell us what he said. You be the mediator. And yet Moses, the mediator, perhaps the greatest human leader in all of history, uh, you know, what, this great giant in the faith and the people of God, Moses, the mediator himself, needs a mediator. He almost dies. Only Zipporah, acting as mediator on his behalf, saves his life. And so even the mediator, Israel's greatest leader, needs a mediator. And if Moses the mediator needs a mediator, then how much more do you and I need a mediator? God's presence is potentially deadly to each of us. It's like walking into a nuclear reactor unprotected. Okay, it's full of energy. God is full of energy and life and abundance. He's the great I am. And yet... Unmediated, it would consume us. How then can we enter into relationship with this covenant God? We too need a mediator. 
who, as Heidelberg Catechism puts it, is true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who at the same time is God. We need a human mediator but because God's presence is deadly, but no mere human can bring us to God. Every human mediator needs a mediator, a go-between, even Moses. And so we need someone who is true and righteous man and yet at the same time is God. Who is this mediator who at the same time is true God and true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We all need a mediator, and that mediator is Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you visit your people, that you see us in the midst of our affliction, and that you do something about it. You know that we need your presence to live. You know that your presence is deadly to us. And so you sent your son Christ Jesus as our mediator, the go-between, to bridge the gap, to make a way for us to enter into relationship with you. Lord, uh, some here are standing on the other side of that gap. They don't have a relationship with you. On this Pentecost Sunday, by your Holy Spirit, be at work in them, drawing them to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit through the mediator, Christ Jesus. Others of us, Lord, we know this good news that Christ is our mediator that makes a way for us to come into your presence. Like Moses, though, we have many objections and reasons why we're hesitant to share that good news with others. We ask that you would overcome our objections, you would reassure us, you would help us not to worry, but to know you are in control of all things. Then, Lord, we do ask that we would be a church where people with a variety of disabilities feel welcomed and included and have opportunities to use the gifts you have given them and to answer the call you have put on their lives. Shape us, Lord, into a group of people who are welcoming and loving to all. Amen.